Okay, well, here, here we are, episode 100 and who knows what, 200 maybe at 80 this point. 80-something. Of, of the Brew Theology podcast. And Janelle and I are back uh, with the one and only Reverend Dr. Jason Whitehead. Back in the day, uh, back in the day, I think the last time he was with us, we did the Open and Relational Theology Extravaganza in Denver. And then before that, it was it was some process event. It was fascinating. And uh, now we're going to be talking about good grief, practical ex- existentialism, and everyday life. And uh, Jason is a licensed clinical social worker, an ICF coach, Presbyterian minister, and educator. Dr. Whitehead's core interests are in helping people find ways to live meaningfully and with purpose. He is the founder of Mosaic Insight, a counseling and coaching practice in the Mile High City. Jason, it's always good to talk to you and see your face. So uh, everybody out there on the interwebs are going to be blessed to have you here. So thank you so much for your time. Well, my my pleasure, Ryan, and thanks for that uh, well-formally written introduction there. And uh, we can just go by Jason the rest of this time, I, I you know. It's the name I've lived with for 52 years almost, and all that other crap is just new stuff. Well, it's interesting. So we, we need to know because it's been so long. What what have you been up to in the last several years, considering the last time I think you were with us, you were with ILIF, and now you you know you started the Mosaic Inside. And yeah. uh, just just yeah. if you could kind of catch us up, that'd be great. Sure. No, I I you know I left uh left ILIF right before the pandemic to start a private practice, which is, you know, the perfect time to do anything new is when everything shuts down and right. can't talk to anybody. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm really, really, you know, appreciative of my capacity to time things well uh, throughout my <laughs> life here. And so I've been in, in private practice for about four years now. Um, and that's a private clinical and coaching practice. Uh, alongside that, uh, do a good bit of work with uh, Juniper Formation, which is a, a UCC church startup here, um, and then have my own kind of new worshiping community that's app-based, uh, a discipleship uh, app where we work with 16 other writers who are people of color and queer and trans and disabled uh, to kind of build a platform to elevate their voice through how they understand faith and how they understand kind of everyday discipleship. And that's called Reframe. And and we, you know, we're, we're lucky enough finally to be in the app stores as of last November. So you can kind of find us there. Um, and then actually, you know, the newest thing is I, I just started working with a, a group called Denver Men's Therapy. So it's a, a local counseling center here that, uh, caters to, to working only with with men or those who identify as as men um and that's been a a long long-held interest of mine in particular in the therapeutic world um and it's been good you know it's about, been about three or four months with them and and uh it's been busy so <laughs> so yeah so and it, you know it's it's fascinating that that we're coming back around to this topic because a couple of my clients were talking about their existential angst in in the world these days uh you know a lot of them are in their late 20s or early 30s so they're getting a jump on a jump on here trying to figure out you know why the heck am i working so hard and you know what's what's all this for you know and and uh it's fascinating because you know a number of them don't have belief systems or philosophies or meaning systems that they adhere to in any way and so it it uh I was talking with a guy recently and he's like, yeah, it's a, it's a really slippery slope just down into nihilism and, and, mm-hmm. you know, not really caring about stuff. Um, and so we, we were having some good philosophical therapeutic conversation, which, which makes this, you know, I'm, I'm over here looking at my notes while I'm talking to you. Cause this was, I think 18 months ago when we did this it's a while. Yeah. Um, and so I have to remember what I, what I forgot I said. Um, yeah. <laughs> at, at that time. Well, hopefully the the questions we came up with will will pull some of that through. Oh, I'm sure y'all, y'all always have <laughs> questions. I'm not I'm not worried about that. And you know, if I'm not entertaining, the two of you are so good at entertaining yourselves that I can just be quiet. <laughs> if I start uh, crying at any point, you you know, I know you're through a screen. If you have any way to, to give me therapy, this this could happen. As you know, you never know. I'm at that stage in life as a middle-aged man where I could just start crying. It could happen these days. 
It does happen, you know. Yeah. Bodies and hormone balances change as we age. I've, I've been telling people, I said, it's, it's been new, but I'm open to it, which is, that's also new. Because I like, when I was in my like early 20s and I was a teenager, I cried a lot. And I didn't cry for like 15 years. Like for, or 12, how old am I now? 45? So however long that is. Let's throw decades in there, I guess. <laughs> you're, you're at that point like what what is happening why 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 am i having these these emotions so yeah uh, so this will be good so you're having you're having people do this that's interesting er, earlier in their 20s and 30s that's getting a jump start like you said that's yeah. pretty cool for a number of them and you know a lot of them it's it's interesting because um people are getting married later and they're finding partners later and they're focused on careers or other things and so they don't have um it's harder to find kind of an intimate social group to be yeah. a part of and to be be friendly with or to be friends with in in many ways um i mean you know surgeon general did the whole you know loneliness epidemic yeah kind of deal that's probably just a couple months ago i think he's been he's been talking about it forever but kind of finally named it publicly um and there's a great deal of 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 good research out there about really the detriment of being alone and being isolated. Mm. And so these guys are just really feeling it hard, I think, in, in many ways, um, you know, all of them well accomplished, you know, great jobs, but just don't know why they have them. Um, right. it's, it's a fascinating practical question for a philosophy that, that, really just as kind of heady for some folks yeah so so yeah if you cry you cry you know i say be in the moment and let it be you know just don't show me a disney movie and or, or no words will be said we'll just sit around and cry or sappy commercials those <laughs> those do it for me too <laughs> the, we saw the latest pixar movie and my wife and i and our kids uh ele, ele, is it elemental yes. yeah and and i looked over and my wife's crying at the end of it and i'm like oh they get you every time yeah. Yeah. yeah nobody else in my family cries it's just me at those movies and and you know my two kids maybe laugh and point a little bit but not too much <laughs> someday it'll be them and they know that oh yeah yeah, yeah. They, they, they you know they have enough of my genes that they'll they'll get there eventually yeah well, so just to, to kind of move towards our topic, um, how do you see existentialism showing up here and maybe give us a little bit of an intro to existential thought um, and then what we can kind of go into the grief side of it as well? Yeah, you know, it's it's um, I mean, the, the basics that I understand and there, there are going to be people out there who understand this a whole heck of a lot more than I do. Um, but the basics as I kind of get it is existentialism is the realization that we're all going to die someday. And it becomes, you know, it, I think we often hear about existential angst or existential crises a lot of times in, in people's lives when they suddenly realize that, you know, our bodies are going to give out and we're finite creatures at, at the end of the day. And when we realize that there's a, a great deal of wrangling about, you know, what what's all this for? What what am I doing with my life? And that's uh, you know, it's I think I said this in the the, the brew theology way back when, you know, I, I, there's not an existentialist that didn't have a significant period of depression in their lives. Um yeah. mainly because of this realization to some extent. And you know, part of it has to do with you know, we are subjective people and we're interpreting the world and we're valuing and ascribing meaning to experiences. Um, you know, we, we take in stuff and then we give give meaning to that or, or we kind of plop it into the spectrum of values or beliefs that we have to, to give it a sense of where it fits in life. Um, and, you know, a part of it you know, for me is, at least when it comes to existentialism, is how do we find meaning in our life? It is, you know, for the existentialist, I think there's a lot of, uh, whether they'd say this or not, but I think there's a lot of overlap with some of the Eastern stuff about present moments yeah. and really being grounded in what's in front of you and trying to experience that 
to the fullest uh, of the extent that we can, which is, again, kind of the cause for the crisis or the angst is that, you know, I go through my day and I do stuff and it doesn't have the meaning that I want it to have. And therefore, why or, you know, what what have it? what have you kind of kind of going on there and you know the world's a pretty well I have a lot of words for it but we'll we'll say chaotic um place and, yeah. and a little absurd at times um there you know the structures around us may not have rhyme or reason for their existence other than you know other people's power or other people's influence on us and so how do we act out of our own agency in these absurd places and continue to kind of gather meaningful moments when life just wants to crap all over us sometimes yeah um and so you know that you know for me that's a big part of this when we're talking about existentialism is how am I present um how am I making meaning or making sense of things and what happens when I don't or I can't or yeah. you know, I, I feel powerless to, or helpless to, or even hopeless to to do that. Yeah, that leaves that leaves people in a rough space. Yeah, when they can't like, make things work. Right. Well, without you know, and and without having the context of what we value in the world, you know, even if and and you know, I, I'm not going to push anybody towards one religious system or another, but you know, just thinking about ethics as a way of organizing the world or aesthetics or philosophy or moral you know morality moral you know values you know if if we don't have something like that there's it's hard to feel grounded yeah and it's hard to put those that cacophony of chaotic experiences into a way of interpreting the world and yeah it's depressing if you're you're not there or, or produces anxiety. You know, that's the other yeah. side. So yeah, for sure. You talked a little bit about how we, the individual has kind of creates internal meaning. Um, and it, that kind of differs from getting meaning from external sources. So can you kind of talk a little more about that when we're searching for meaning, maybe what, what is the, what resonates more helps more when we're in the middle of that despair. Yeah. We can we can play with all sorts of postmodern words there, and I don't want to do that because that's obnoxious. Um, <laughs> but the you know the the idea is that we take in data from the world around us, and then we organize that data in our head around a system that helps us make sense of what's going on. We have a lot of words, you know, liberalism, conservatism, progressivism, uh, fundamentalism, even evangelicalism, whatever word, you know, a lot of words that that go into this kind of cognitive, this this brain schema, or you know, this this file cabinet of experiences that we have, and so you know, my sense is that we're constantly taking in data or experiences. Um, and trying to fit them somewhere, right? Or, or trying to give them, uh, oh, this makes sense, you know, or this is a consequence of this, or this is, you know, I'm going to do this because I'm accountable to this value that I have, and so it's a, it's a constant dialogue, um, and even dialogue may be too, too narrow because it really is you and all those previous experiences intersecting with what's in front of you to try to figure out what to do next yeah and then when we do something taking that in and reflection and going well that wasn't either what i expected or what i valued uh, you know betrayed my own values or man i feel good that you know that actually i i was able to stand up for something i believe in or that i value in that that moment and so that interplay between you know I think most folks would call it subject and object. Um, but, you know, between me and the world or other people or an experience allows us to kind of incorporate stuff, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, but when it can't be incorporated, that's when we we start to freak out, I think, sometimes. Does that get yeah. your 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 question enough? 
I think so. Yeah, I, I think yeah. With you know, and with that, you can you know transitioning within within my own mind, and um, you have and you talk about there's there's there's, there's, like, there's this freedom that we have, right? There's also this responsibility, and these are these core concepts in existentialism. Um, and then individuals having to like balance that freedom to choose with the responsibility and the accountability that comes with it. So when you're guiding people along this process and they're having these, these moments of like, okay, I have a lot of freedom here, evidently, that I didn't know I had. But at the same time, I have to weigh this with some kind of, there, it's, that's, that's all part of that, that open and relational concept of like, there's a responsibility that I have here and I can account, I'm accountable to something beyond myself. Right. So how, how do you help people navigate and balance that? Um, that that's a great question because it, it really is so different depending on the person and, and where they are. Um, and, and you're exactly right. You know, the, those concepts of accountability and responsibility are, are process, theology, philosophy, open and relational terms that I use and have for 10 years to describe what it means to be practically theological. In, in the world in, in many ways. And so, you know, I love the concept and the idea of freedom and also understand how it's constrained by experiences in many ways, you know, that, that we do have choice and within that choice are, are myriad, a lot of possibilities, but those choices get narrowed by previous experiences or, you know, what, what I used to tell my students, you know, our choices are narrowed by what brought us to a moment. And, and sometimes all we can do is the best next thing. And that best next thing is still a pretty crappy thing because of what got us into that space. And that's where that accountability and responsibility comes in is, you know, I'm going to imagine or going to think that we always have the opportunity to choose to live out our values or to be our, accountable to our values um, in a way that is responsible to the people around us and the world around us. Um, I am not simple enough to think that there aren't consequences for doing that. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes that consequence might be isolation from people, or it might be you know, taking us out of certain relationships, but maybe putting us in different ones. Um, it might be you know, the, the conscience of a whistleblower in some place that causes a job to be lost by standing up for what you believe in and what you value in this world. Um, I don't underestimate the cost of freedom in that regard because there's a ton of systems out there that are meant to convince us that we aren't free yeah. and that we don't have choice. Um, or maybe not convince us that we don't have choice, but to tell you, you don't have choice. Um, and that's really what power does in, in places. And I think it causes a lot of existential frustration or anger um, because we can feel the possibility of value and freedom and being constrained by a system makes us want to feel violent sometimes because we want to be able to push into those spaces. Um, and that goes, I mean, I think that goes on all ends of the spectrum in many ways. It's not exclusive to one or the other. Um, and then sometimes we just, pardon my language, we just take this shit too seriously. Um, sometimes we just need to smile and go, huh, rather than have it be, you know, perfectly enacted in some space and understand that colossal failures are just feedback that we learn from. Yeah. It's an opportunity to continue to grow. I would, I would assume the weight of cynicism too plays into all this as well. And the, yeah. I feel like the older we get, and it's easy, it's really, it's kind of like the, you get more cynical, I think even in the younger years now, more than you used to, but I mean, everybody's cynical. Yeah. So yeah, you might as well just live into the weight of, of that, uh, but you have to, okay, well, I feel your cynicism. However, you know, can yeah. we move an inch? Can we move an inch here and and not just be weighed down in cynicism? Yeah. Well, you know, I, th I think that's a great a great point, and that's I think the trap sometimes of existentialism is if we're all going to die, what what's the point of really yeah. working hard for something? We'll let somebody else do that. We'll let the next generation do that. Um, and so we we just basically give up any power that we have in space. Um, you know, I'm always, I'm always one to think that 
one side is never enough and it's counterweighted by other things. That is, you know, there isn't hope without cynicism to some extent. There, there isn't, you know, possibility without nothing. Um, and, and so, you know, that capacity to help people kind of move, even if it's just, you know, as, as, uh, as James Clear from Atomic Habits says, you know, even if it's just picking up a piece of sand and moving it from one side of the table to the next side of the table, that's change. It may not feel like huge change, but it's change. And, and if we are active participants in change rather than passive, you know, receptors change, then we have a sense of agency in spaces and we can be accountable and responsible and feel authentic to, to who we believe ourselves to be in those, those moments. And so with, with the, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll screw up Peter Parker's uncle here and, you know, with, with great cynicism comes great hope um, because you can't be cynical. You can't notice what's lost without knowing that there's something there to behold in many ways. I think the one place in kind of an existential mindset where we get stuck, though, is in the anxiety before that hope comes. Um, it's really easy to get stuck in that tide pool over on the side of just what will the future be? What's coming? What's happening? Where am I going? Which I I hear a lot in the voices around me right now. There's a lot of stress and anxiety about where what is going on in the world, both myself and then the people around you and then the larger culture. And so, you know, how do, is there something, some special way that as existential from that existential worldview that we process anxiety and maybe help turn it towards something else? You know, I'm going to say probably, and that's a great, you know, a great question and a great <laughs> observation. Um, you know, I, I, I want to appreciate it. Um, and in many ways, because, you know, when we think psychologically about the, the umbrella of anxiety, you know, you defined it really well, that it's, you know, it's a, a generalized worry about not knowing what comes next. That's, that's pretty much anxiety in a nutshell, and, and you stated it beautifully. Um, and then alongside that, though, there's healthy anxiety and unhealthy anxiety. You know, there's the, the healthy anxiety that says, well, I'm going to go find out. I'm going to go do something, try something, be something, become something. And there's the unhealthy anxiety that says, I'm going to run away. Yeah. And I'm going to hide and I'm going to continue to be scared and I'm going to work really hard to make other people scared as well so that things don't change. And so, you know, as far as, you know, the existential side of that, you know, I think it's going to come down to what you believe and what what are you willing to give up to do nothing? Because doing nothing is a compromise of values in many ways. And even what, you know, even if science is your thing, you know, what evolutionary science tells us is that we're better in community. Yeah. And we're better, you know, when we have that opportunity to evolve culture and we're better when we can continue to kind of think and grow in what we know. I mean, those are kind of the frontier spaces of evolutionary biology is to understand why we gather. Why do we come together? Yeah. And so that existential piece for me, you know, coupled with the, the relational theology work is that we exist to be together. We exist to be in relationship with one another. Um, and when we do intentional things that cause violence to those relationships, you know, we really are, are doing harm to ourselves when yeah. we think we're being safe. Because um, the world's going to go on with without, you know, I'm, I'm 52, so I've maybe got 30 or so years based on my family genetics left. You know, what stories am I going to leave? For my kids and grandkids, what are they going to tell about me? That's my existential concern is, and, you know, are they going to talk about me as generous or compassionate or as someone who shows up? Or are they going to talk to me about so someone who's scared and who yeah. elicited fear and anger and made the world unsafe by believing that it's unsafe? 
And so, you know, for me, that's where existentialism can, in the beginning, it feels really scary. But once you kind of get used to it, it helps us interrogate what we believe. It helps us, in, you know, really critically look at, at what we've been taught, what we've inherited from family, from friends, from experiences to say, is this worth keeping? And if I'm going to keep it and continue to be in relationship with others, how is this useful? Yeah. And, you know, there, there's usefulness and caution and there's usefulness and risk. But how is it, how am I going to embody that as I meet other people in the present in, in ways that, again, hold me responsible as part of that relational matrix and milieu there? Yeah. So you, you speak a lot about living authentically according to the values that you have, that you have obviously taken from the outside, these stages of life. Uh, okay, this is what yeah. I, I think I believe for now. Yeah. Uh, and you, you, you obviously suggested one big one that we, we do belong together in, in some form of community. Um, yeah. So could you, could you provide some other, other examples of what that would look like for us to, to incorporate these principles uh, into our, just our daily lives? Uh, I know it sounds simple to say, yeah, just gather. But then some people are like, I can't even pick up my phone to call my best friend. I've got oh, yeah. so much anxiety or I have so much on my plate or I have, you know, uh, work is too hard or no one's going to ever understand what I'm going through. It's so, because like sometimes I have these moments of like, well, just pick up your phone, you know, like, you're like no, no it's, it's a lot harder than that. Yeah, it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it is. I mean, that's, and yeah. that's the the idea of kind of moving the grain, the grain of sand from one side of the table to the next, it's, it may not be as easy as picking up your phone and calling somebody, mm -hmm. but it may be, you know, a step back from that is, is texting someone and say, hey, how you doing? Mm -hmm. um, and, a, and a step back from that is, you know, moving their contact card to the front of your phone. And, you know, a step back from that is kind of, who have I, who, is important for me to connect with that I haven't connected with in a while. And so, you know, for me, when I, especially when I'm working with, with folks on this, you know, we have a goal in mind, which is, uh, you know, and uh, I tell all my guys that, that I work with, you know, I say there's two goals of therapy. One is emotional regulation and two is good social connection. If, 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 if I can help you do those two things, you're actually pretty well set up psychologically to navigate most things in life outside of like really huge traumas. And so, you know, what we, what we talk about is what's the goal? You know, if the goal is to live authentically and to values, okay, well, what do you value? Let's, let's start there with, you know, what, when you feel at your best, what are you doing? Who are you doing it with? What kind of activities are you engaging in, you know, that are healthy? You know, we got, we got a lot of painkillers in the world. Uh, it's a whole lot easier to, to Instagram stalk somebody than it is to actually reach out to them and say, hey, how you doing? Or I noticed this and I'm curious about more. Um, and so, you know, this kind of existential stuff for me, you know, and, and I say live authentically, knowing that I don't do it well. I do it pretty good some days, you know, when I'm at my best, which is like once a month, maybe. Um, I, I mean, like one hour a month, um, but it's, it's more, I think than, it's more than that. Sometimes, sometimes, <laughs> you know, some, some months it does just feel like an hour and it's, it's gone. And I'm like, well, crap, missed that one. Um, but the idea in part, um, for, for me here is coming to grips with that. We're not going to be here forever gives us a story. And it's a really simple story. That is, I'm alive right now. I will not be alive at some point. What's going to happen between this moment and this moment? What's the story that, that not just that I want to tell, but that, you know, when I'm on my deathbed and I got a couple friends around me, what are they going to say, remember when? about? Yeah. And so that idea of, you know, your remember wins with people that you care about and who care about you become kind of vital in this existential frame in, in many ways. And, and there's a ton of paths to get to that story, yeah. but there's just you in front of this moment. And so, you know, what builds that, you know, what, what builds that for, for me with a 15 year old and an 11 year old is, you know, for one of them, let's put the phone down and 
and just chat for a minute? Or, you know, what are you listening to on Spotify? You know, my my oldest just created a a, a dad plus kid playlist using AI that overlapped. We have like a 67% music match. And so it creates a playlist for us, just for the two of us. And so wherever we go in the car, we listen to it. Cool. That's so cool. So what, what app is that? Where did she, I'm interested I think in they actually got it. I think it's in Spotify itself. Oh, okay. So their, their AI generator will let you pick two people and then it'll create a music blend for that's it. And fun. So they found it. I, I didn't find it. And well, so, I think we, we can all probably say there's nothing greater to bond with in like music. Music is in every oh, yeah. era of our life. Like yeah. I remember what, where I was when I, when I heard this for the first time where I was at that exactly. concert. Or, oh, it's so well, good. Yeah, and it's fun to like, you know, and, and what they'll do is they'll, you know, they put like my picture and their picture next to the song, or they'll put both our pictures if it's a song that overlaps for both of us. So we can kind of like when the music comes on, you know, the conversation is, okay, whose is it? Whose who's song is, oh, this is mine. Okay, well, tell me why this is this is yours and tell me what what you like about this. I like you know, that. With, with my youngest, it's, you know, she loves to play Rummy Cub. And so we both have the Rummy Cub app. And so we'll sit on the sofa together because we don't both don't like to clean up anything because um, we have the game as well. But, you know, we'll sit on the sofa and play. And she whoops my butt half the time. But it's just kind of fun. And, and you know, yeah. we, we find those touch points with people that we connect over. And then we start to build a story. You know, I, I do my best to take my kids to soccer practices and dance practices and all that stuff because that's time that, you know, it's time to build a story. And it's it's time that my kids will hopefully say to their kids, oh, you know, my dad did okay at this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and it's same the same, you know, it doesn't have to be a family of origin either that those stories are built in. That's just the easiest one for me to draw on. But it's, you know, my friend texting me two hours ago to say there's a 6 a.m. tea time on Monday, July 3rd. Are you in? Like, haven't played golf in a year? Sure. Why the, why the hell not? Um, because that builds a story and it builds a potential connection. You know, we can laugh at how poor I'm going to play that that day. And I, you know, and so you're exactly right that it's hard to pick up a phone and do it. And and there's a ton of research psychologically and otherwise that that will attest to what you're saying is that, you know, we have friends and we just don't do it. And, you know, some of Are that we... boils. Go ahead, are, we, are, are, we, are we more afraid of, of being seen, making the mistake once we're seen? Is it, because I mean, these sometimes, these can be people, I'm speaking, I'm just in general, like I can get specific, I don't mind, I'm pretty vulnerable, but like it could be that these some of your closest friends yeah. and, and, you're, and you feel stuck, you know? Yeah. Um, so what is what is the biggest, the biggest fear for, for most people? And, there's, and it's hard to say because we're generalizing. I, yeah, I mean, we're general, you know, I can speak for myself here and say that my greatest fear is not being seen. Mm. That is reaching out and not hearing anything back. Yeah. And and so, you know, I would hesitate personally at that particular fear that, you know, I make and you know, in in, uh, in couples counseling, you call it you make a bid for connection and it's either accepted or rejected. Yeah. And, and we kind of internalize messages over time um, because, you know, we have this impression that everybody's available all the time. And that's, you know, that that's the wonder and the bane of technology is that it's created a belief system that we are and should be available at all times. Yeah. So it becomes easier to self-reject before you are exactly rejected even though the other person right. just didn't have time yeah, yeah. right we, we we like to protect ourselves we like to protect our identities our egos and and so you know we just say you know what i can handle this on my own mm -hmm. i think there was some study done in in new york and this was back like 10 years ago and you know i think it was in the new york times an article there that was talking about something on the neighborhood of the uh, amongst the people that they surveyed 60 percent didn't have somebody who could pick them up at the hospital if they were in a bind. Um, and so, you know, it would seem important to build that connection because that's a buffer for our health and well being in many ways. Uh, 
And the existentialist side of you says, yes, be present, build connections, just be who you are in the moment. And the existential angst says, don't do that because you're going to scare everybody away and nobody will be here anymore and nobody's going to tell your story. And both of them can be competing values that that win and lose mm -hmm. in life sometimes, depending on just kind of how mentally fit we feel at that particular moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. Man, great question. Great comment. I don't even know if there's a question. Good conversation, nonetheless. It's these yeah. are it's a, it's very helpful. I I think you you were you were you had said something to where you said you you did the thing that gave you meaning and value, like, oh, you made the joke maybe once once a month or one hour or whatever, you know. But I mean, but how often do we do that? We say, Oh, that when's the last time I did that thing? Yeah. And it sometimes it will be, it'll be three months, six months, a year, like you said. Yeah. It's been a year since you played golf. Like I it's learning how to say yes and also learning how to say no. I think you got you to do both. Yeah. And I often tell people, I, I say that, you know, when, when you say yes to somebody, if it's the wrong person, you're saying, you could be saying no to the things you should be doing. So that's also yeah. the, probably some fear and anxiety within that as well. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny. I, you know, I, James Clear's book, uh, you know, I refer to it a lot in the therapy that I do. And uh, the one quote that, that um, we work through a good bit is, you know, every decision we make is a vote for the kind of person we want to be. And, and so, you know, the, the big things and the little things we do have value over, over time. And, you know, it's, it's as much, you know, vacuuming the house, because I know that my spouse likes it, and making a choice to, to do that, um, as it is making the choice not to do that and, and watch her do that you know, after a long day at work or something like that. And so, um, yeah, you know, I mean, authenticity is wonderful and it's a really big, fancy psychological word. Um, but the most authentic versions of ourselves, I think I'm coming to realize are the ones that are flexible. That is, we're not fixed in how we have to be in every moment. You know, there was a big a big to-do about politicians always voting the way they said they were going to vote or being consistent. And, you know, the difficulty with that is that it doesn't allow for new data and new experiences to affect anyone. When we have a fixed mentality about who folks are going to be when they show up somewhere, um, we lose because, you know, we don't get to celebrate in their newness and our potential newness and knowing them um yeah i mean whoever said life was easy yeah this make yeah this is our this makes me want to go down a rabbit trail i'm not going to but if we could pin it maybe come back for a ps but labeling people in our very western world of like you know whether it's uh, uh myers-briggs or the enneagram which yeah. probably is, it's more helpful because you have the wings but i'll i say all that because i feel like the the labels that we give each other in ourselves we do we limit each other in ourselves all the time yeah, and we're trained to do that. Oh, you're supposed to think this way and act this way and vote this way. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, pit, pit it, come back later. But I know we got to move yeah. on. That's, that's yeah. A, There's that's great a social psychology on that. Just, yeah. just so you know about mental shortcuts that we take, so as not to burn as much energy. Um, so yeah, you can look up a. There's a bias around that somewhere that they've named, uh, particularly, but I can't think of it offhand. Yeah. Well, I, I keep kind of something that's floating through in my mind in the background here is is what is the effect of past trauma on all of this mm -hmm. on um, I think the 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 grief that comes out of our trauma, like how mm -hmm. we're processing that um, when you talk about writing your new narrative and getting to the end of life and having this beautiful thing. Yeah. But then also, how do, how do we, how are we shaped and formed by some of those traumatic things that happen earlier in life? And how do they um, kind of wander through this? So, you know, I, I grew up in an existentialist household. That was kind of something we actually talked about and processed. And, you know, is this life meaningful? And am I, am I making the right choice? And when I'm Indiana Jones standing on the edge of the thing and sticking my leg out to find the bridge, like, am I going to do it right? Is it going to be there? And so, I mean, I, th I think a lot of people have senses of what should be about how life should turn out about, 
yeah. um, what it's supposed to be. And then that rarely happens for anybody. And so I think it, around this like good grief of ideas, you know, how do we get it? We have that mess. It's got to be dealt with because we, the three of us all have seen what happens when it's not dealt with. Sure. And so how does, how does this kind of all meld together here with thinking about the quality and the choices of my life mm-hmm. and, you know, dealing with those old pieces, those, those broken expectations, that's probably enough for you to give us something. <laughs> that's, that's a lot more than enough, Janelle. That's like six <laughs> different subjects and four different podcasts. Well, I mean, you said your afternoon was free and I can yeah, edit. There, things, there we go. So Take like... it. Yeah, I appreciate you taking, <laughs> taking my words seriously. Um, you know, all right, so a bunch of a bunch of keywords in there uh, for me at least as I I think about things. Um, so trauma is a big one. Um, most personality change happens incrementally over time, except in the case of trauma and epiphany, is the way that I like to mm. say. Either really really big good things or really really big negative yeah, things. Bad things. And, you know, there's uh, there's a saying in the, the neuropsych world that neurons that fire together, wire together. So when we have a big thing happen, a bunch of brain activity goes on, and those neurons kind of band together like a rope. You know, they don't, they don't move around and shift around, but they connect yeah. like that. And, and basically what that does to us is when we have a similar kind of activation event, those memories are easier to recall, they're stronger, and they last longer. So it's really hard to get rid of trauma. But the flip side of that, or and the flip side of that, is that you know what we've learned about brains is that they're changing. They change up until we die, for the most part. So the you know the big fancy word is neuroplasticity, and you know along with that adage of of firing and wiring, there's a, another term called neural pruning. And that means that the less we use a pathway, the more likely those neurons are to disconnect and connect elsewhere. And so what that, that bodes, as I think about change and I think about people and I think about events like grief and trauma, is that yes, it's big and huge and it comes back really easily and it can change. That is, it'll always be with you, but you can change how it's with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, to me, what, what therapy is about is changing how you live with your stories in, in many ways. And so, you know, coupling the, the trauma in there, you know, it's realizing when we come to a present moment and we have that cacophony of voices in the back of our head trying to influence our choices, that trauma is going to be the one with the megaphone. It's, it's going to be the one that yells the loudest. And, and the choice there is how we choose to listen to it. Is this a reasonable voice of caution? Is, is this an overprotective voice that is going to inhibit me from experiencing the world around me? Um, and, and there's a lot of, you know, fun little tools and tricks around breathing and around sensory things that you can do to kind of calm your brain enough to give, to right-size the voices. That make the right size the stories so that that you know you can pick a little bit easier. You know, a lot of the I'm not a huge fan of mindfulness stuff because I I think it sometimes bastardizes the intent of meditation. But there's some good breathing exercises for mindfulness that can be helpful. You know, mindfulness sometimes strips out the meaning aspect of breath work and other things like that. So I struggle with that sometimes, but I know that it has its usefulness and, and it can provide some, some stops in there. Um, but you know, you're right as well that one of our, our biggest kind of traumas that we all experience is grief. Yes. The, the loss of someone meaningful or the loss of something meaningful. You know, it could be a the loss of a career path as much as it is the loss of a parent. Um, the, you know, and so, you know, I tend to think of grief as a process rather than an emotion. It's, it's a big constellation of a lot of emotions. Uh, you know, sometimes we're relieved when someone dies, 
And then that could be relief that they caused us pain, or that could be relief that they're not in pain anymore. That, you know, it, it could be, you know, I get to tell the, the story I need to tell. Um, and, you know, then we feel guilty about feeling relieved. So we add mm -hmm. that to our grief constellation there because the world tells us that we should be sad or whatever it is. And, and then we get angry at the world for telling us that we have to be sad when we want to be relieved. And so all of that kind of informs a grief process. And um, it's like untangling a, a yarn ball that a cat's been playing with for, you know, 48 hours. You mm -mm. just got to pick a strand. I see you shaking your head. You just nope. you probably just give up and grab the scissors. But No, I uh, give those to Baird. Oh, okay. He does there the yarn. I don't do the yarn. Go. Well, but, you know, and that's that's a part of kind of having some courage to unwind all of those emotions so that they can be felt and experienced rather than hidden, which is a lot of what what we yeah. do with our grief. Um, I, was, I was doing a grief group and um, this may or may not mean anything to a, to some of your listeners, but uh, when they used to do those mall surveys, uh, you know, back when we had our indoor malls and, you know, the people would walk around with the clipboards and try to get you to, you know, talk about a product or, you know, engage in research. Somebody did uh, ask the question about how long are you allowed to grieve after the death of a loved one? And the consensus answer was 24 hours. That was the 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 one that most folks picked. They said about 24 hours is what you get because we're so uncomfortable with grief and especially other people's grief. Yeah. We're, we really struggle with just being present with people, you know, and, and just, I don't know, just being okay with being a little sad because someone else is sad or a little angry because someone else is angry. Um, and I, I, that goes back to what you were talking about, Ryan, I think a moment ago is we kind of preempt ourselves from engaging out of the fear of not knowing what to say, not knowing what to do, not, am I allowed to cry if they're crying? Do, you know, do I hold their hand? Or, and so what we do is we buy a card and then we invite them out to dinner 48 hours later because they're supposed to be over their grief so that we can celebrate or do whatever that we think we need to get do to get over this. Um, and, and it's a really rigid way of approaching people who grieve differently and in unexpected ways. Um, and so, you know, when I think of, of good grief, I think of, uh, somebody once gave me the image in a group I was doing, um, of a, like a rock in a bag. And they said that the rock doesn't get smaller, the bag gets bigger. That is our ability to carry our grief changes, even though the, the structure and the foundation of that grief may remain the same. Um, and so, you know, our ability to build skills and social connections and tools and uh, around that, you know, just again, right sizes it over time. Um, and, and I'm certainly aware people get stuck because we don't have a culture that is good at handling this or teaching how to handle it. So I, I yeah, think we, I got... we have, yeah, we do have strange, we have strange expectations of, of ourselves yeah. and others, uh, whether, you, you know, you, you'd said like, so somebody dies, they, they have cancer, uh, maybe there's a job loss, uh, or it could be like just a, a process of an aging mm -hmm. uh, parent. And you're like, okay, the writing's on the wall, you know, and then you got these five, very the, the long goodbyes, the five, 10 years. Yeah. Uh, but nobody really knows, even yourself, like how, how am I supposed to handle it? And then how am I supposed to relate to these people who are trying to comfort me, but they don't know how to do it either? Um, yeah, well, this, this is, is where it's, existential, existentialism yeah. helps. Yeah. Because the focus is on the present. Yeah. And, and who am I called or asked to be in that moment with the people that are with me? Yeah, Rather asking the question, what do, you, what do you need right now? But also, if you know somebody in their truest self, you'll, you will know what to do in those moments with the right yeah. people. Yeah, there was a story that that somebody was telling me, um, uh, you know, the, it was a group of friends and a, a parent died and like four of them just showed up at the house one day and cleaned the house. Mm -hmm. Didn't say a word, didn't didn't talk to anybody, didn't do it. They just knew each other well enough to know that, you know, having a straight house would be important to this person. Um, didn't even really ask permission, just kind of showed up with all their stuff, did it, left. And, and to that particular person, it was the most meaningful thing somebody could do 
because they just didn't have the emotional, physical yeah. energy to to do what helps them feel like the world is going to be okay. And, and you know, I, you know, I, I love what you know what you said there, just about showing up. A lot of people don't know how they can be helped mm-hmm. in moments of grief. It, so sometimes also, we I mean, say, you like know what, we can offer. Yeah. Yep. If if I brought you dinner, would that be the most helpful thing? If I just sat with you, would that be, you know, help give them some options sometimes? Yeah. Because when yeah. we're aggrieved, we don't know our, our our head from our tail sometimes. Um, yeah. and, and finding a way to right ourselves takes time and social connection and effort. Mm-hmm. When you had said 20, 24 hours, yeah. uh, it's, it's very mind-blowing. I, I think that, I actually think that my wife and I were talking about this recently. Um, it's probably in some medical study as well. Something similar to this. Um, I, so, so if it's 24 hours, or let's, let's say you're a little bit more human and you give people six weeks, I don't know what, the, but still, there, we, we always hear like the, the first anniversaries. I'm just using death as an example, like yeah. okay, the first Mother's Day, right? Uh, the first oh. Christmas, the first, and that could be 11 months, 12 months. And then, mm-hmm. but then you have like the five-year anniversaries and and right. so forth, but we are so quick to let's just, oh, you got to move on. You got to move on. Um, and it, we're so unfair. Mm-hmm. Um, so you kind of, you do know about after six weeks so who your true friends are when something yeah. traumatic does happen. Exactly. You know, it's, uh, you know, when I first started as a, a minister, um, I, I would call as, you know, like you normally do when there's a moment of grief in someone's life. And then I would let their friends take over. And then I call back about a month later because that's when everybody's gone. You know, the the acute phase for people who aren't intimate with that particular situation is over. Mm-hmm. And and grief is a chronic thing. It is not an acute thing. Trauma is an acute thing that's carried with us for a long, long time. But grief is, it at its most helpful, gets incorporated into our identity. And we learn how to carry it meaningfully um, by looking out for triggers like anniversaries or Christmases or other things like that and being able to say, you know what, I'm not going to do that because, you know, that's a, I just don't think I can handle it. So knowing yourself well enough to say yes or no to certain things and being honest with people. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we fall back on the old Brene Brown, clear as kind thing. Be clear with folks that, you know, that's not what I need right now, but here's how maybe you can help. Yeah. Um, you know, as you know, you can text me or, you know, I need to clear out some of this stuff. Can you really come over and help me clear through some of these things so that there's, you know, the reminders aren't everywhere, but, you know, learning that, and that's a part of that value and learning yourself in the midst of all this that I think existentialism calls for to, to know yourself well enough to be able to articulate with clarity, but also with some flexibility. Who am I in this moment? And, and what do I need from this relationship or this conversation? Yeah, yeah. I think most, speaking of uh, Brown, most recently somebody was sending uh, some really short, one of those little TikToks. You think, oh, you open it up, this is gonna be nothing. And it was like, this is too heavy. Why did you send me this in a TikTok? And it was about uh, she and her husband talking about the 80-20. Like sometimes I have, it's not 50-50. Yeah. It's sometimes it's I have 20%. And I'm like, I need you to pick up the 80%. But yeah. I think that would be true within this grief process as well. Of like, I have I have maybe 10% to give. Okay, you yeah. know, What a great uh, connection. Cause I, cause that I, made that. Um, yeah. she, when she said that, I was like, oh man. And I said that to my wife too. <laughs> I'm like, okay, this is helpful. This is one of those helpful things. You should open up this TikTok. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a there's a uh, guy I think Anthony Vincent on Instagram who's a heavy metal singer, but he sings about proper self care, <laughs> and so it's it's just some of the, the, the I I enjoy just watching his his Instagram videos because it's you know scream metal, take care of yourself, uh, nice. <laughs> lyrics, and so it just it it. Uh, it fits because you know the, well. The, re- the current research says that actually heavy metal helps with depression. Um, Interesting, yeah. And so yeah. you know that's the music style of of those who are recovering from depression, and that it's actually really beneficial to getting out some of the aggression. Would there. the same be would the same be true with like punching bags? Like I know they you know they say going on walks and running and those kinds of things, yeah. exercise. Uh, what about comedy? Stand up comedy? 
slapstick. Yeah. Actually, you know, it, it's fascinating. Um, there's a there's a bunch of stuff, and and again, you kind of know yourself well. But uh, you know, my understanding of the research is exercise is huge. You know, if you're feeling depressed or feeling, um, but the other thing is volunteering. Mm. That mm -hmm. that actually going out and volunteering has a similar benefit to exercise. Only the the benefits kind of up here. You know, the exercise gets certain neurochemicals going and gets our bodies and you know it, it, it can for the most part activate those pleasure centers in the brain um, but volunteering does the same thing but shifts perspective too and that you know the depression is often a internal cascade of of feelings that we have and it's hard to connect with other people but if we can connect with other experiences of helping people it shows some ability to kind of alleviate that self self cycle that we get into with depression a lot of times um i you know i used to joke with folks that i've lost more clients by prescribing volunteering um in my my practice than in any other thing so i have to wait for a session or two before i'll i'll do that but uh <laughs> it's uh, I, I recommend it all the time find something you love or something that's meaningful to you and you know Go volunteer for an hour and just observe how you feel when you're done. Yeah, observe, good. you know, that that kind of self-observation that I think they talk about sometimes in in kind of Buddhist the Buddhist world of how you see yourself and acting in the world and being able to be that observer. Um, you know what you know what you like about it and what you learn. Get curious with yourself in those spaces. Same with grief. Well, this was helpful to me. This is not, and articulate that. Don't just accept what other people offer. Um, but we need to be able to ask to call on family and friends to say, you know, I can't, I can't get to this appointment because my head's too fuzzy and I'm worried about my driving. You know, and they say, you know, there's a brain fog with grief that's at least six months to the twelve months for a lot of folks that we, you know, never make a big decision six months after. The loss especially the loss of someone um so yeah there's a, a, a ton of fun stuff out there um trying to remember I, I, was, I was trying to look at my my resources here um around grief but i don't have the guy's name there's a guy in fort collins who does a ton of good grief work um and so so yeah well jason i grieved i grieved leaving denver and that's a process as well Oh yeah, I, I, I'm still very open, but I'm I'm more authentically open. I'll tell people like, yeah, Denver's home to me, and I, yeah. it's it's not like a hit on where I live or my family being closer. It's it's nothing to do with it. But I, so I'm still I still grieve the loss of that. It didn't really fully hit me until about six months in. Interestingly, but yeah. it was also during COVID, so it was magnified as well. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I but all the things that you're talking about, um, I had to learn how to how to process my grief and I but I still in some ways I still do but it's it's an it's a it's healthier now and now yeah. I can joke now I kind of joke about it a little bit and, and this well, that's, that, that's that, the that point is, you know eventually I think we're called to befriend our grief yeah and and that the more sense. we hold it at a, an arm's distance the angrier it gets and the angrier it feels um and and uh you know I think eventually you want to get to the point you know I, I, I talk about the visualization of of thanking and pivoting that we we thank our grief for being present and reminding us and saying you know right now I need to pivot into this though um, and then almost have a conversation with it if you need to um, you know it's a you know a much more trite example is you know I used to be the sprinter on the the ultimate frisbee teams that I played on I can't run worth a lick anymore so you know I have to realize that you know my body doesn't do what it used to do 20 years ago when I was in my my late 20s and early 30s. And so I have to, you know, grieve that I can't do that, but I pivot into other activities that I can do and and seek to enjoy those as much as possible. Well, you know, I can still throw a Frisbee and I can enjoy that, but I don't have to be the fastest guy out there again. Um, and don't have to be the, you know, the one who's doing this or that or scoring the points. But, you know, just enjoy throwing Frisbee with my kids or with a couple of guys or whatever it is. Um, and so that that ability to befriend what's changing around us um, and and almost welcome the change sometimes 
you know, allows us the opportunity to be there when others need the same. And that's, you know, to me, good mental flexibility. Yeah, it'd be nice if it was a magic wand. But, oh, that'd be lovely. That'd be lovely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, just as you were saying that, I mean, I just, I've kind of had that experience recently working on a project with, you know, with some people from my old tradition. And if, if I was in the same grief, angry place that I was say six or seven years ago, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been able to show up the way that I, I did this time. Yeah. And, and it was really the way you said that was like, yeah, this, I, I was, I was different in this space because I've found a way kind of through a lot of that grief. It's still there and it's still, I still can get angry, but Mm -hmm. there's a different relationship there now with what was and what is. I was watching a a little reel on Instagram. I have no idea how, whether this is studied or whatever, but somebody said it's impossible to be angry and curious at the same time. And so it's, and and so when we're angry, it's really hard to help people. To, to wonder what they need or to wonder how we might be present for someone if we're angry with them all the time. And, you know, I think above all else for me as a value, living a curious life is important um, and, and being okay with wonder and awe and not knowing everything, even as I try to explain everything. Yeah. Yeah, you definitely can't be present with people that you're angry with. You can't, you're not curious about how they think yeah. and how they could think differently and where they are in that transition or deconstruction or reconstruction or lack thereof. Oh yeah. Yeah. But so. yeah, it's, it's just funny, you know, you said that because uh, yeah, we've, we've all probably gone through those stages of, of this anger of, of the person that you, that we once were or the people mm-hmm. that even that we were around and you're like, you gotta let me, some of that stuff. Eventually you do have to let go. Otherwise it, it will own you. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you can still see it and be like, okay, well, it's not healthy, but yeah. I can also now yeah. speak it, speak into, into those places now. And, and even be a bridge, you know, for people who are unsure, you know, yeah. where they are. That's wonderful. I, I love that because I, I was making external connections and I love making that internal connection that you just did there, Ryan, about anger at, at oneself. It's hard to be curious about how we're changing or how, you know, what what's going on if if we're angry with ourselves all the time. I really appreciate that. I'm going to use that at some point, so... Um, well, I probably I probably stole it from Janelle. Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> the amount of conversations we've had over the years. I don't know that I have anything else in particular. Um, what about you, Ryan? Not not specifically. I I think this is a it's a good this is a good hopefully a springboard for people within within their own communities to to be their authentic self or to to practice to begin to practice that to be vulnerable. Yeah. Or uh, as as they say in in Germany, vulnerable. Fair enough. Uh, yes, my sorry, my 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 best friend. Uh, he lives there, and he's like they say vulnerable, vulnerable, vulnerable. <laughs> well, it's actually a pretty good one. Uh, so yeah, when you're but to be to be vulnerable around the right people. Um, hey, but even the wrong people. Uh, even sometimes yeah. sometimes you got to put yourself out there and say, oh, okay, maybe not them. Yeah, but um, well, you, you never learn, know who yeah. it is if you're not willing to risk yeah. in that decision sometimes. But this, this, this is, I think this is a healthy process. And I, I think that I appreciate the fact that you have spent a lot of time uh, and that you're currently doing this with, with individuals and dealing with grief because uh, we, don't, we don't give it enough time and we're not patient enough with that within our own lives. Yeah, yeah. It, I don't it have anything hard. else to add or questions, but I, you know, do you have any, any other concluding thoughts or take take home? Uh, just just grateful words? for the time at this moment. I you know appreciate the opportunity to to catch up with the two of you a bit here and and uh, have a good focused conversation. Um, yeah, you know, just to love to end with something tried and small that people could take with them. But this is really complex stuff. Yeah, and it's not easy stuff, and it you know. It takes a life in many ways to live a life or to learn how to live one. So the sooner we start trying, the better. Yeah, yeah. we can read all the things and watch all the things and listen to all the things. Yeah. And, but that doesn't, that, that doesn't live life for us. We have to go out there and do it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's, fun, it, it's funny you were talking about awe and wonder. We we actually just did a discussion here in Waco with our group on that one. I think it was a couple weeks ago, and I find it, I just find it kind of ironic that we're talking about awe and wonder as, as opposed to like we should go on a walk outside right now, except for that it's a hundred degrees outside. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> stare out the window. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, but we do we do need to process uh, this as well as experience it. So, yeah. um, uh, well, it, it, I tell you what, if you're listening right now, thank you so much. We are gonna, uh, well, we're gonna keep on brewing theology. And uh, Jason, is there anywhere that people can find your work, or that you know, are you writing? Are you are you have any videos out there? Anything else? Uh, yeah, no, uh, you know, no videos necessarily. Um, it, some of my work here and there. I mean, you can find me at mosaicinsight.com. That's the, the easiest way. Um, and yeah, I'm always up for a good beer or a good conversation. So, you know, make it happen. Excellent. And, and also being in the Mile High City, you have the best beer there. And in no way am I jealous of that. But I do. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. Let me get back to my, my grief again. Oh, no. That's right. We'll, we'll lift one up for you the next time. <laughs> Uh, a place with uh, a town with four breweries or five breweries and you'll have 400 in Denver, but it's okay. That's it's right. Okay. You know, hey, thank, God for, thank God for distribution of, of the, <laughs> the, the grocery stores and liquor stores. Yeah. Hopefully uh, you get some good ones down there. We do. We do. Uh, all right. Well, uh, share this on the line, people. Uh, we are at Brew Theology at Instagram, Twitter, Brew underscore Theology on Twitter. Did I say that wrong? Facebook and yeah. Instagram, Brew Theology. Facebook and Instagram. Yeah. Facebook, Instagram, Brew Theology, Twitter, Brew underscore Theology, BrewTheology.org, chapters across the country, email Janelle, myself, Ryan, or Janelle at BrewTheology.org if you want to hear more about how to start a chapter in your local town or city. All right. Cheers, All right. everybody. Cheers. All right. Take care, folks. Clink, 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 clink.